Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the LSE. I'm Craig Calhoun, the director of the school, and it's my pleasure to chair this evening's public discussion. This event is the final session of a conference which has been going on all day, marking the 50th anniversary of Lionel Robbins' landmark report into higher education. We thought it would be good for this final session, which will look at the future of higher education, to have an open event, not just part of the conference, but for all of you. Organizing the conference and this evening's event has involved a lot of work, and I would like to thank all of those on the organizing committee, and especially Professor, Professor Nicholas Barr, who led that effort splendidly, as well as being a key researcher and one of the speakers in the conference, and Soraya Mohavir, who uh, um, has come from the LSE events office and handled all of the logistics and coordination superbly. We're very grateful for support from the LSE's annual fund. Now, as well as marking the 50th anniversary of the Robbins Report, an extraordinary document with a major report and 10 supporting volumes of, of very thorough statistics, interviews, submissions, and analysis, we would like to let you know that we've launched at LSE Library an online digital exhibition of the life of Lionel Robbins. Some of you will have enjoyed the poster session upstairs that reported on Robbins and the report, um, but this is an online resource. As well as a di distinguished economist, Lionel was someone who was important not only to the LSE, where he gave decades of service, as a student, a professor, a chair of the economics department, chairman of the Board of Governors, but in wider public life, made many important contributions. There is, of course, the report into higher education we have been discussing today, which was really transformative for UK higher education and especially expansion of the sector. There was also his leadership of the economic section of the War Cabinet offices during the Second World War, his role representing Britain at the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference, and his positions as a board member and director of the National Gallery and the Royal Opera. This new online exhibition is not only a fitting tribute to one of the LSE's most important figures, but will make available many of his papers to future generations of researchers, and I hope make available his role model to the range of people in the LSE, students, staff, and teaching staff, who give to the public in a variety of ways, as well as performing their core duties at the university. It's a great pleasure to welcome all three of our speakers to the LSE this evening. Bara Mokradnia is director of the Higher Education Policy Institute, the far left, though of course not in ideological terms. My far left, your far right, you see it's all a matter of perspective. <laughs> Rajai Naik is director of government and external affairs at the mm -hmm. Open University. He's playing the centrist tonight. <laughs> and David Willits is Minister for Universities and Science. And indeed, he has um, just issued some comments of considerable interest on the Robbins Report and making quite striking new proposals. So again, I'll leave it to you to decide whether tonight he's on the right or the left. Each of our speakers will speak for around 10 minutes or so. After David's comments, we will open the floor up immediately to uh, questions for a few minutes because he has to leave rather promptly to go to Parliament and vote. We will then have the second two speakers and further question and answer time for them. For those Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hash LSE Robbins. Now, will you please join me in welcoming the first of this evening's speakers, 
our Minister for Higher Education Science, David Willits. Right. Uh, good evening. Thank you very much for the opportunity of joining this conference. And I, am a, I have some slides. I just wanted to check how the... Well, thank you very much for the opportunity of joining this conference about one of the great figures of the London School of Economics. I didn't have the uh, privilege of ever meeting Lionel Robbins, but reading his biography and reading his great Robbins report, uh, it's, one can sense what a significant figure he was, both in the life of this institution, for the economics profession in Great Britain, and also for universities policy. And of course his great report, the Robbins Report, has often been compared in its significance to the Beveridge Report 20 years before it, and in some ways also to the Butler Act. And we're very fortunate that two of the people who work most closely with him as researchers for his great exercise have themselves had long and distinguished careers involved with the LSE, and I see them both here in the audience today, uh, Klaus Moser and Richard Layard. Uh, and I'm grateful to them as well for the time they've given me in the past few months as I've been writing my own kind of assessment of Robbins after 50 years, the advice that they've given me. Uh, one of the striking features of the report is, of course, the large volumes of evidence that supported it. And I'm going to turn to all the higher education policy issues, but as an example of evidence-based policy and harnessing the sheer sort of intellectual firepower of the LSE and institutions like it to provide very powerful analysis and evidence in support of a set of propositions, it remains uh, exemplary to this day. What I'd like to do is just touch on some of the key themes in Robbins and also reflect on their relevance to where we are in higher education today. And I guess what he is most remembered for is growth. And this chart shows the, the number of students, uh, both undergraduate in blue and postgraduate in grey, going into higher education uh, in the UK. And you can see that those crucial dates for which he set targets, 10 years and 20 years roughly after the publication of his report in 63, uh, the growth was roughly, ma roughly matched the kind of trajectory he had set out. And the growth in fits and starts has carried on. And we now have, compared with what was seen at the time as extraordinarily ambitious proposals of half a million students, which he proposed at a time when there were only about 200, 250,000 students, we're now up to one and a half million undergraduates and another half million postgraduates. So the growth carries on. Uh, and the growth had a kind of, he had two arguments for the growth. He had first of all a demographic argument and secondly an educational argument. The demographic argument was set by the particular context in which he was writing, the baby boom immediately after the, after the end of the Second World War, peak of births in 1947, one of the only two occasions in the 20th century when more than a million babies have been born in Britain in any one year. That surge in the number of babies was about to feed through and crash as a tidal wave through the universities. So there was a sheer demographic pressure. For us today, the position is rather different. 
what we actually have is at the moment, because the birth rate was declining in the 1990s, uh, that's feeding through into a reduction in the number. In, this is a measure of the number of 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, and 20-year-olds. And it shows that at the moment we are, we are in a background of demographic decline in this age group. But the birth rate started rising again in about 2004-05, and we will feel that effect in demand for university places at some time around 2021. And the debates that you read in the papers today, pressure for nursery places, pressure for primary school places, in 10 years or 15 years' time, there's going to be pressure for higher education places because of the demographics. But that was only one of his arguments. His second argument was about educational attainment. And he, when he was trying to look at what should be the future growth of people going to university, he considered and explicitly rejected a manpower, a manpower planning model where he could say, we know that the British economy in 25 years' time is going to need so many engineers and so many physics teachers, and we therefore got to educate so many young people today. He explicitly said nobody could know the future structure of the British economy. He went instead, because he was, after all, a neoclassical economist in many ways, he went instead for a model based on individual educational attainment. His argument really rested on the transformational effect of, for example, the Butler Act of 1944, with more young people staying on in education for longer and more getting the two A-level grades, whatever level, two E's at A-level, which he regarded as the kind of one basic benchmark for being able to go to university. And what he did was he ingeniously turned the argument round from the people who were sceptical about expansion then, as there are people who are sceptical about expansion now. He said to them, on what basis do you say that in future a lower proportion of people getting two A-levels should go to university than go to university now? And if you want to ensure that a similar proportion or perhaps even more, but as a minimum, a similar proportion of people getting those qualifications go on to university, you have to go for bold expansion. And it was the interaction, therefore, of the uh, demographic pressures and the education pressures that drove his growth agenda. Uh, and let me be clear, although, as I said, the demographic argument is different, I don't believe that in the long run, especially after 2021 when that demographic change uh, uh, occurs, but also if you look at the long run effect of the uh, continuing improvement in school standards, our education reforms, the spread of academies, my view is that we're going to continue and the requirement for people to stay on for any educational training until the age of 18, these forces driving increased demand by young people for places at university have not suddenly been turned off in the year 2013. They have been at work for the past 50 years and these are deep-seated social, economic and cultural trends which I think will carry on. And we try in the pamphlet that I have produced today, this week, to give some very speculative illustrations of what that, this might mean as you get past the current demographic dip for the number of people each year going to university. Um, the demographic trends measure is uh, essentially just picking up on the, on the uh, growth of the age group plus a, an adjustment for changes in, likely changes in social composition of the age group to reflect the fact that people, there is going to be an increase in the number of percentage of people from high income backgrounds but with no other adjustment. 
The unmet demand measure is one where we allow for the fact that there are people, even today, who apply for university, don't get a place and reapply. If you could regard that as kind of people who are serious about wishing to go to university, frustrated unmet demand, and we try to estimate what that is and combine the demographic. And the, the wildest figure of 620,000 in 2035 takes the participation rate currently uh, achieved by young people from the most affluent 20% of the population and applies it to the entire population. That simply says, imagine that kids from the poorest backgrounds have the same percentage going to university as the kids from the most affluent backgrounds today. This is a lively discussion I have with my friend and colleague uh, Vince Cable, because he represents in Twickenham a very affluent constituency. We're about to bring out the latest hefty figures on this by constituency. He has a 63% participation rate in Twickenham. I represent a low-income constituency uh, with uh, a uh, which is uh, with a very large uh, uh, council estate with people living in disadvantaged circumstances and instead of being in the top 20 for university participation in England we are, I'm ashamed to say, about 520th and we have 23% participation in university from young people in my constituency. If you have 23% participation you understand the arguments for expansion and more places very clearly indeed. So there are arguments for future expansion that are as relevant today as they were in the days of Robbins. Then, of course, there is this argument that is lively at the moment, but what will happen to all these young people if they go to university? Will they have jobs? Is it worthwhile? Is, are we selling them a false prospectus? And Robbins discusses the arguments for and against uh, more people going to university and describe some of the arguments about both economic benefits and wider social and cultural benefits as quote uh, unmeasurable but we have made progress in the past 50 years in trying to identify these effects and measure them and this quadrant I regard as it is an attempt to set out the different forms of benefits that people and society enjoys from going to university. And it is my peace offering to Stefan Collini. I don't know if <laughs> Stefan is here. It is my peace offering to Stefan Collini. Because it is an attempt just to set out in this quadrant different types of benefits from going to university. There are economic benefits, the market end. And there are non-market benefits, social and cultural benefits. There are also, and this is the other axis, there are wider social benefits accruing to society as a whole, and there are individual benefits. And my view is that all four parts of this quadrant are occupied. Now, inevitably, when you're talking about how to finance higher education, you tend to look at the market returns, which are themselves, incidentally, uh, clearly both for the individual and for society as a whole. But we have, an, I think, an endless and rather frustrating debate where people, as soon as they identify an effect in one quadrant, are challenged with failing to recognise an effect in a different quadrant. There are effects in all four quadrants. And this list is not a random list. What I'm hoping to do in the next week or ten days is put up on our website this quadrant where for each one of the items that we recognise there is a, at least one substantial piece of economic or social research which supports the assertion. There is nothing on this list which is on this list because it's just been plucked at random. Every one of these has supporting evidence on the economic or wider benefits of learning 
uh, accumulated by economists and social scientists in the past 20 years. So it is not a casual or cavalier list. Uh, and although, and let me now pick particularly economic effects, because I read in uh, uh, I read quite a few comments, people say, well, you know, nowadays graduates are unemployed, there's no economic returns for going to university, so forgive me for just focusing particularly on this effect. These are our latest figures from the most recent piece of work by independent economists, but we sponsored it at Biz, and it does show continuing very substantial uh, graduate premium. And it looks as if even as the supply of graduates in Britain has increased, so also the demand for graduates from employers has also increased. So that the graduate premium has remained stable or even actually these latest estimates are slightly larger than some previous estimates. So there is still a clear economic return to higher education, but the individual's economic return is not the only measure. This is one of the four quadrants. Now, uh, I think this is an area where we've made progress since Robin's Day. I just want briefly to touch on a theme where the, some of the issues remain all too pertinent, and that is, of course, Robin's cared a lot about the balance between teaching and research and was very frustrated that teaching, he feared, was losing out to research in attention and effort and prestige, and I, I won't go through all these charts, I'm afraid, just because I want to, don't want to take up too much time, but essentially we have tried with some new data to capture where we are for time spent on teaching, and this is a new set of statistics, and I'm grateful to biz statisticians, Andrew Ray's in the audience, I think, for the work that has gone into this, trying to uh, look at what has happened to the balance of teaching and research time, and the Robin survey, of course, is of, I think, the 31 universities or whatever that Klaus and Richard were able to study at the time. So we've both done it. We've done a breakdown both for those universities that are still going 50 years later, where you can see a significant shift with teaching time down to 39% from 55%, uh, and research time up from 45% to 61%. So there are still challenges about how we ensure that students get a teaching experience that um, uh, is of the highest quality. And the fact is that we have created in the past 20-25 years a set of economic incentives for universities that focus very much on research with intense competition for getting those papers into peer-reviewed journals without commensurate incentives to focus on teaching. And part of the logic of what we've been trying to do in our reforms is create similarly sharp incentives to produce high quality teaching, both because of the way we've liberalised the number controls so that students have greater capacity to go to the university they choose, and also with requirements for greater information in, in key information sets so that prospective students can see what information is going to be available to them. Now, let me now turn to perhaps the most fraught and controversial issue of the lot, which is, of course, how to pay for higher education. And uh, in the pamphlet that I've produced with the Social Market Foundation this week, I go through Robin's own thought process. And even in his report in 1963, he explicitly considers whether there should be some kind of loan scheme or not. And he says there are arguments for loans, uh, and he has two arguments in particular. The first is that universities are paid for by people, many of whom are on modest earnings, 
and graduates by and large earn more. So if you care about a socially progressive system, it's fairer to have graduates paying for their higher education than the generality of taxpayers. And his second argument was about commitment, that if there's a sense that there's some payment being made, even though of course it's not out of the student's own pocket, that will mean they take the whole experience more seriously. But he has counter-arguments as well, and his main counter-argument is that attitudes to higher education were there was still a lot of people wary of higher education and he wanted to see higher education spread more widely across society before such a change was contemplated. And he had, I'm just reporting attitudes 50 years ago, he goes specifically to say that there are still many parents who don't believe that their daughters should have the opportunity of going to higher education and he wants to see an attitude change to female participation in higher education before such a change. So he says, on balance, we decided against loans. He subsequently, in lectures and in his memoirs and his re revisiting higher education ten years later, says that he regretted they weren't bolder and going with what was called the pressed plan. And the pressed plan is essentially that graduates, there should be a loan scheme, and graduates should pay back as a percentage of their earnings to cover the cost of their higher education. And there is a clear uh, intellectual... Uh, uh, strand which goes from Prest to Robbins to I have to say and he's also here today Nick Barr and Charles Clark's reforms it's great to see Charles Clark here and what we ourselves have done where basically we took the structure of the previous government's reforms but increased the volume of the fees whilst retaining of course uh, the no requirement for the students to pay up front so I think that the that argument about how you should finance higher education, you can see a, uh, a clear intellectual strand through Robbins right through to decisions that faced with the constraints of office have been taken by all three political parties. Now, let me touch on what that environment is because there are some confusions and issues here. First of all, um, Sometimes people say, well, now you've just privatised higher education. But my quadrants show that there is a public value to education as well as a private value. There's a non-market value as well as a market value. Why then have you just put all the costs onto the student? This is not correct. This is our estimate of the amount of public expenditure behind each student in our new system. And it, com com and it comprises three main elements. Uh, this is an annual figure, of course. On average, there's going to be a loan per year of about £12,000. These are all averages. About £12,000 fee loan and some maintenance loan. And the RAB charge for that in the 35 to 40% range means that that is the public expenditure cost that we account for. The, that is the proportion of the loan which we do not expect to be repaid. And this is often the fact that some of the loans are not, uh, not going to be repaid is sometimes regarded as a terrible defect of the system. I was reading a piece by Will Hutton in the Observer the other week. He said, and there are some students who are never going to be able to pay back their loans. Well, of course, the answer is this is a deliberate, progressive feature of the system. If you are earning less than £21,000, you are not expected to pay back your loan. You only pay back if you are in better paid work at a rate of 9% and your earnings about above that. So the writing off of the loans that are not being paid back through PAYE is a deliberate feature of the system. There is secondly, maintenance grant, still available on a, on a substantial scale. 
and thirdly, some continuing teaching grant for higher cost courses. Now, Nick Barr, in his presentation at the conference earlier on today, argued that because the RAB charge was too high, he would have liked a system which, where more was repaid, because the RAB charge was too high, it was the reason why we had number controls on the number of students. And let me make it clear, I don't particularly like number controls on the number of students. The reason why we have number controls on the number of students is that is the means whereby we deliver public expenditure control in higher education. But the reason for public expenditure control is not simply that the RAP charge is a bit too high. You have maintenance grants, you have teaching grants, and it's very hard to see how the RAP charge would be zero in almost any system. Oh, I just missed Nick, Nick, I'm going to repeat this for Nick in a moment. I see Nick's just coming. So the argument that it's only because of the 21,000 repayment threshold that we have student number controls, and were it not for the 21,000 repayment threshold, we wouldn't need to have uh, public expenditure controls, ignores the fact that public support for students continues in several different forms, and quite rightly so. Let me now just touch on a couple of, of uh, final issues. One issue is the context in which we've been having to do all this. And there's a, the environment in which I'm operating as the Minister for Universities has got two constraints. The first constraint, which I have to say is a lot tougher than the one that Charles faced in 2004-5-6, is coming into office with a budget deficit of 11.5% of GDP. So you're offering in a, operating in an environment where you have to bring down public expenditure. And the question was, in what way, given that I don't think any of the three political parties have suggested that higher education should be exempt from this, how should you do it? And the trade-offs were either reduce student numbers, reduce resource per student, or expect graduates to pay back more. And my view then, and my view now, is faced with those three options, expecting graduates to pay back more was far superior to either of the alternatives. That was the first uh, point about the context. The second context is one that, was sh that um, is shaped by the academic community. And it was, I have to say, on display in the earlier parts of the seminar, which I have just been attending. When challenged with uh, why, with the still shocking gap between participation by students from low-income backgrounds and high-income backgrounds from university, the conventional response from universities is the problem is prior attainment. Nothing to do with USGOV, it's just prior attainment. In fact, at every stage of the education system, I always observe that when faced with any challenge, people are prone to look to the previous stage of the education system as the source of the problem. So universities, if only the secondary schools are doing better, when we got equalised A-level achievement, there wouldn't be a problem. And the, and the secondary schools say, if you knew what they're like when they arrived from primary school at the age of 11, you'd be amazed at what we achieve. And the primary schools say, some of them, when they arrive at primary school at the age of five, they've never held a crayon, they've never seen a book. And then you go to the nurseries, and the nurseries say, you know what they're like when they turn up here at two years. You know, we wonder what the parents have been doing. Everybody wishes to blame the previous group. Now, my view is that this is wrong in several respects. First of all, each stage of the education process has to take responsibility for people as they are. When I was discussing this issue in California with Californian Republicans as to how you selected people for the Californian state university system and why they didn't just use SAT scores, they said, if we just, they, I remember the guy saying, he said, there are very bright people in central Los Angeles 
If we just use SAT scores, none of them would ever go to university. But the best way to identify the bright kids is to say the top 10% in every, primary, in every secondary school in Los Angeles should have the opportunity of going into the California State University system. That way we identify the bright kids regardless of their exact educational attainment. Now let me make it clear, I'm not advocating this Californian policy in Britain because clearly it be denounced as appalling communist social engineering and shouldn't possibly be contemplated. So I'm not recommending However, this assumption that there's nothing for universities to do other than wait for schools to do something about their A-levels, I think is a failure to recognise the responsibility that universities have to spot talent and aptitude. And it has a second consequence. That was my high-minded argument. Let me now give you my low-minded argument. Every time a university academic, and I heard this argument today from Anna Vignoles, I heard it from Nick Barr, I heard it from several other people, every time they deploy that argument, they're telling ministers please cut us and send the money to a different parts of the education system. And that is the message which is received. So we have a system where the higher, a significant body of experts in the economics of education are advocating an experiment in the redistribution of education spending, where incidentally Britain, no, England is already an outlier. If you look at England compared to the OECD comparisons, we spend more on early years, we spend more on primary schools, we spend more on secondary schools, and we spend less on HE. So, for everybody who says that, including Nick, I say, all right, so I'm operating in an environment where there is a fis enormous fiscal pressures, and for any given total of education spending, you want a redistribution to early years because of the prior attainment problem. In that case, there's absolutely no chance of reversing some of the grant, the displacement of grants by fees and loans that I had to do in 2010 because of the fiscal pressures. There's absolutely no chance of... Uh, saying, well, we will continue with maintenance grant, is that's the intellectual environment. Every person who proposes that has to tell me what next I'm supposed to cut. And if they're not proposed to tell me what next I'm going to cut, then we need to have a serious debate about HE policy. But my view is that this, this, kind of, this uh, conventional wisdom attributable to James Technology also provides an intellectual context within which I have to operate. So that was the first issue that I wanted to just to bring to the surface. Let me finally comment on the challenge of so-called marketisation. And what does marketisation mean? And are we, the coalition, marketising higher education? And let me, it can mean various different things. If by marketisation you mean student choice, my view is the crucial step was the creation of UCCA, as it was then called, 50 years ago. In fact, just before Robbins came out. And that was the moment when the English higher education system diverged significantly from many continental and US state models. That was the point when we said, individual students will choose using a single database, giving them access to all universities across the country. That, combined with the Anderson reforms bringing in a nationwide grant system, meant that we parted company with a model where local authorities financed you to go to their local university because that was where your grant applied and they wouldn't fund you to go anywhere else and you each had an, an assumption that you were going to have go to the comprehensive university in your area. The UCCA decision, uh, looking back, was the crucial moment. What we then had for the next 50 years is UCCA, apart from the fact that large number of students didn't get what they chose. All we had was UCCA, but as the money wasn't allocated in accordance with the express preferences, there were large numbers of students who didn't get their first choice. 
So we had, we had a consumer model, but large numbers of frustrated consumers. All that our reforms have done had slightly increased, or it's maybe even better than that, significantly increased the number of students who get their first choice of university. Now, which bit of this do the people who disapprove of marketisation disapprove of? Do they disapprove of the fact that we now have a model where more students get their first choice? It would really, the choices weren't supposed to be real choices. It's supposed to be a game where there was someone behind the scenes deciding how many places there were at each individual university. So it was kind of constrained and guided choice. Was that a better system? Or was the creation of UCA itself a mistake? Should we have just said you go to your local university and we have a German-style land system where you, you just travel to the nearest university, staying at home, and instantly staying on maintenance grant as well? So which bit of the two-stage development of English higher education is the shocking bit of marketisation we're supposed to reverse? In that sense, I am indeed pro-consumerism. There's another sense in which I am pro-marketisation, and that is the diversity of providers. And there are alternative providers that are now coming in. And almost everything that I hear criticising alternative providers today is what Coleridge said when he denounced the creation of UCL. It was when, you, when the Oxbridge monopoly was broken by the creation of England's first secular university, UCL, in the 1830s, Coleridge denounced it as a mere lecture bazaar because people would be paying a penny to go and have a lecture with these new people who didn't have any of the traditions of Oxford and Cambridge behind them and they weren't going to deliver proper higher education. And my view is that diversity of provision, provided it is all properly regulated, is also a good uh, goal because there is the greater chance of individuals finding a slot. There are other forms of marketisation which are not happening there isn't significant price competition. And that's because when you have a repayment model of the sort that we have introduced, where it's basically 9% of your earnings above £21,000, anybody who said, I, I don't think I can afford 8750 at Bristol, or whatever, I'm inventing these figures, I can't afford 8750 at Bristol, I think I'd better go to Newcastle for 8000 would not be understanding the basics of our system because it's not money they pay up front. Insofar as you could calculate a difference, it would mean you'd finish repaying age 47 or 49. It isn't, a, it isn't price competition. It's competition based on more information that, that for, available for prospective students than ever before about what kind of teaching experience they're going to have, what the employment outcomes are. So David, in that sense, no, it's not price competition. I just, David, I want to make sure you know your... Oh, you're aware right. that you may be putting right. your chance to vote on the immigration right. no, risk. No, I know, I've gotten, I know where they're doing it. That is very kind. I, better, I had better finish now. And the only thing is, the, the final point, which is what these figures say, is it isn't marketisation in the sense that it is only private payment. There is significant exchequer support available behind each student, and quite rightly so. Thank you very much indeed. David's pressed, I think he's willing to answer a yeah, few questions. Yeah, and so the first question from Jay Stoll of our Students' Union. Hi, uh, Jay Stoll, General Secretary of the LSE Students' Union. I hope you apologise for a bit of contempt in my voice. Um, your party and your government have seen absolutely atrocious changes to HE in this country, um, ranging from the scrapping of EMA to this institution's teaching grant, where it's the trebling of tuition fees. I mean, this is slightly aside from Robbins, I'm fully aware, I apologise to everyone. But, you know, considering the vote you've got tonight, I feel it's really important that, as the lead representative of a student body that has 56% international students, uh, somebody makes a, a stand for them. Tonight you're going to be voting on an immigration bill 
that effectively charges £1,000 over somebody's degree course to use the NHS if they're not from the EU. You're also going to be passing a bill tonight that actually will, charge background, uh, will create background checks for international students if they want to be a tenant in London, uh, for example, which is already price of students, uh, which is already far too expensive for students, sorry. I, I, I would be failing uh, our students at, at this university if I didn't raise that for you tonight. I'm sorry, Craig. Yeah. No. Do, you have, no, do you have a question? Yeah. At the the, end the of question it. is, why does your government hate right. international students? Thank you. <laughs> right. Well, we do not hate international students. And the, if you look at our, the other countries that attract significant numbers of international students, almost every single one of them, in some way, expects a payment or contribution towards the public services that the students are going to use. They, they do. They are absolutely, I agree with that. But that's a different point. It does not restrict them. There is no limit on the number of legitimate students that can come. And if you look at what happens in the US, which attracts more international students than us, the US expects them to pay for their health care. If you look at what they do in Australia, they require an upfront payment towards your health care costs if you're coming to Australia. What we're doing is what every other major country recruiting large numbers of international students also does. And just on your earlier comments, and I know there's, there's a feeling about this, but one of the main things we have done is increase the resource behind the education of each student at the NSE, and that was very important. I, and the gain, the extra resource, is most significant for students in the social sciences and economics and the humanities. That's where the... In, that is... Yeah, but let me explain what happened, because even Nick put it in a slightly disingenuous way earlier on. There are four bands. There were four bands of teaching grant from band A, which was for medicine, and I can't remember the exact figures, but about kind of £12,000 or whatever for the extra cost of medicine, through to band C, which was um, some lab-based disciplines, and band D, which is arts, humanities, and social sciences, where there was, in the old system, £2,700 of grant and a fee of about 3200 giving a total resource for the education of a person in arts, humanities and social sciences of about £5,900. What we did is we took £4,000 off all teaching grant. This, as there was only £2,700 of teaching grant remaining for the arts, humanities and social sciences, they only lost 2,700. This is described as you took away the teaching grant for social sciences as if we had some vendetta against social sciences. No, this was a general reduction in grant. If you now look at the resource behind a student at many of our universities, if you take a fee of 9,000, if you knock off 1,000 for fee waivers and access spend or whatever, social sciences students have now on average got something like 8,000 pounds of resource behind them compared with about 6,000 pounds of resource behind them and the students in this room are therefore entitled to ask the academics and the management of this university or any university how the teaching experience is being improved with the extra resource that is now available for social science students. Okay, um, person about five rows back there. Thank you. Um, Joan O'Mahony, Academic Lead at the Higher Education Academy for Retention. Um, thank you, Minister. I found, a very interesting, I found a very interesting, a very interesting overview. And my question is, it is wonderful to see all the widening access and increased numbers of students at universities. But sometimes I feel concerned that with all of this 
larger participation that nothing really seems to, to change that much in society and that our government and lawyers, chambers and doctors and dental surgeries are still mm. overwhelmingly filled mm. with um, graduates from the elite universities and from the private schools. Mm. And what I wanted to know is mm. how this can, can change. And I appreciate what you said mm. about the need for universities to make, you know, mm. come together and have a public voice. But how can the government support them to do that? And how can universities and employers and the government work together to ensure that we don't just yep. have more people yep. being educated, but that we have yep. more people educated to actually yep. change our society? Well, this is the challenge of social mobility, and it is as, uh, it's as much of a challenge now as it has been any point since the war. I accept that. Uh, I think there is something that universities like this one can do, and I know the pressure's on them, but at, some, at considerable political cost, we have recognised that it is legitimate for universities to look behind attainment at what people's potential is. And the irony is that my view, my kind of picture of the spectrum is at one extreme is China, where basically they read off your marks in the exams you sit at the age of 18 and the top 250 goes to Beijing and the next 250 go to Shanghai or whatever it is. And at the other extreme, there's America, which has an absolutely explicit agenda of moulding the class. And most of the pressure that we're under, including from within universities, is to move closer to China. What about the American model? What about explicitly saying that you want to look behind people's actual marks to what their potential is? That is a perfectly legitimate decision for a university to take. And when you look at the challenge they rise to in the US system, it means that they have to accept there are some people who have not been so well schooled, so will have not got the educational attainment that you might have hoped for, but you can look behind that and see people who, for example, if you spend money on a foundation year to give them a chance to catch up, will then excel. Now, I suspect the biggest single constraint for universities in doing this is the way that the league tables are constructed. And these are not government league tables. These are league tables constructed by most of our major national papers, which take A-level grades on entry as a measure of quality. And just imagine if some of the pressures and some of the frustration that I sometimes find myself on the receiving end. Imagine if people instead directed it at the, the papers that publish league tables which just assume A-level grades is a measure of quality and got a smarter measure of potential. I think that would massively change the culture and I think that would be a really big advance. But it's a free country and I can't tell people how to construct their league tables. Okay. Man in the green and white shirt. David, you tell me when you need to stop. Yeah, no, no, that's right. Hi, um, I think sort of following on from that point about access and support, um, my question is um, what can the government do to support more people into postgraduate education ah. because a lot of it has been about undergraduate yeah. but I know that for people from my community in Gateshead the chance of getting a yeah. master's degree and, and increasingly society is putting more and more emphasis on higher and higher education for someone from my community it's either you've got to win the lottery or you're going to get into crippling debt so what can the government do to support yeah. them? Well first of all that is a very fair challenge and I accept in terms of where we are um, I noted down Nick's measures for both Charles Clark's reforms and um, our reforms, and I think on, on the, his four crucial measures, fortunately we're ahead. More money for universities, more financial support for students, more students, higher participation rates. But the, the two great glaring 
uh, challenges remaining are part-time students and postgrads. Uh, let me begin by saying something defensive. We have not reduced in any way the postgraduate funding. If anything, we are trying to increase it. We are, uh, we've put in 25 million in 13-14, and we are going to divert a significant amount of the National Scholarship Programme away from undergraduates where it hasn't had a significant effect on behaviour to postgrads instead. So we're trying to put extra money in, even when it's tight. I would like to see the, the, uh, the professional and career development loan market extend. Um, there, are, there are proposals in Europe for guaranteed for master's loans, but I will freely accept this is unfinished business. There is more that needs to be done. We're not reducing it. We're trying to increase the support, but this is a new frontier in social mobility where whatever happens after the election is going to have to be tackled. Okay. The woman in green against the back wall. Thank you very much. Um, I thought your, your figures on uh, how academics allocate their time between teaching and research is very interesting and I haven't seen that before. I wondered whether um, perhaps academics work longer hours so that mm -hmm. they spend more hours both in teaching and research. And, uh, <laughs> could you show that as well? <laughs> well, that's very, that is an ingenious explanation. There may be something in it. We, what we did, and this was the inspiration of Robbins, and I asked our statisticians a few months back with this anniversary coming up to see if there, were, there was data that had been prepared for Robbins 50 years ago that we could try to replicate today and this was one of the most interesting sort of bits of work we did so the answer is these are new figures published this week uh, to update Robbins 50 years on and it will require further work you may be right all right of the woman the front center in black yeah I see you um. I'm a layperson. Uh, one of Robin's recommendations was technological universities. Mm. I, I, my observation, this has hardly happened. I only can think of you, Mist. Well, there were um, colleges uh, of advanced technology that subsequently became universities, and you know the traditions of a, of a place like uh, Bath or Aston can be traced back to those origins. Um, and behind the term university, we have in England a very wide range of types of institutions and there are some that are in effect focusing on science and technology to this day. What probably happened is the signalling isn't as, as clear as it should be, but there are some who make it absolutely clear that that um, really remains their, their core mission as a centre because of its history and because I come from Birmingham, the University of Aston is a very good example of that. Well, what happened with, if you want, if I discussed this briefly in my panel, what happened with Robbins was that, and, with the, and here I'm going to, and now I, I think there, is a, there were some uh, uh, ways in which things didn't turn out as he expected. In his growth forecast, he made two further assumptions. First of all, he looked at the pattern of, of future education attainment and identified quite correctly that the big surge in the number of people going to university would be amongst young women, not men. Secondly, he assumed a very significant uh, part of the increase in the number of students would be in science and technology. What happened, this is a reflection of cultural attitudes then, it's not something I support, but the culture, there was no way that within 15 years attitudes to female participation in science and technology was actually going to change in the way that would have made his forecasts deliverable. So what happened was you had a greater surge of people into arts and humanities 
and social sciences than he forecast. And you ended up with basically empty places on science and technology courses. And that in turn, I argue in the pamphlet, led to some of those challenges about the status of science and technology because what happened is that the science and technology recruitment was basically kind of anyone they could find could get in. And on the, on the arts and, and the humanities, there was overcrowding and people said nobody properly planned for this growth in numbers. But it was, I have to say, and this is always delicate territory, I'm not, uh, I'm not in any way endorsing the attitude. It seems to be an interaction of those two features of his forecast. Okay, in the front right corner. Right. I know you've got to go, David. I was going to send you this, but in fact, at the time of the Deering Commission or committee, I actually carried out, and it was published in the Deering Report, a study which looked at time allocation by university mm. staff mm. and actually did answer also that mm. question which was asked behind mm. me. And it's interesting that that wasn't quoted, <laughs> but I will well, send it to you. Yeah, the, uh, there was great research by doing. I'm trying. I'm doing an update today for 2012. This is we're trying to do 50 years on now. Okay, Rosie. Um, just oh, Rosie Coleman, uh, Education Officer for LSE Students Union. I want to bring it back to international students, given the obviously their importance tonight. Mm. Um, and a part of Jay's question you actually didn't answer. Um, with most international students already having to pay six months rent up front because of their inability to have a guarantor. I wondered how you and your government can argue that having tenant checks is anything but disincentivizing international students to the UK. Well, all I can say, I mean, I've just been in China with the Chancellor and there the appetite amongst young people in China to come and study in Britain is very strong indeed. And of course it is a, uh, it is a competitive market and they have a choice and they're obviously thinking about the US and Britain and Australia as the main countries they look for. And it's very important that our offer, as the British offer, is one of high quality and one that they think is worthwhile. Uh, and all I can say is that the, and I'm very aware of all the pressures around migration and students, but fortunately the number of people from overseas applying to come to British universities continues to go up. And we make it clear that we have no cap on the number of legitimate students. No, well, uh, it, is a, it is a genuine international um, marketplace. They choose how much do they pay and what do they get for it. And is it worthwhile in terms of the transformation of their life chances or the type of experience that they will have? Okay. There's our question of the woman of white. I know David's going to have to go any moment. Um, hi there. Um, I just wanted to go back to the percentage of disadvantaged young people yeah. that go on to university yeah. that you addressed at the beginning of the, of the talk. Um, and I think that it's really important. Um, I work for an organisation called Inter University, and we try and address that gap. I think that you were talking about how it's really important to look at potential yep. of young people when they're applying to university rather than basing it just on attainment. Mm. And I think actually part of the problem is not addressing it at a young enough age. And actually maybe what the government could be doing is more at a younger age to support those people from disadvantaged backgrounds and trying to put in intervention methods and more support to make sure that potential is nurtured and achieved and making sure that it's not too late, basically. Yep. Well, you see... That is, and I said there is a very respectable strand of opinion behind that, and people that I, for whom I have great personal respect, like Anna Vignoles and Nick Barr, argue that, and James Heckman got the Nobel Prize, and that's one of his arguments. Um, 
I think that that we have to take a judgment. Let's put it very crudely. How much extra social mobility do you buy for a hundred million pounds of more free nursery places or a hundred million pounds on the pupil premium or a hundred million pounds of education maintenance allowance or a hundred million pounds spent on university access? Now, uh, that is... A, and that's a legitimate public policy question. Now, clearly, we've got to do some of all of those things. I'm not against early years. My view is that we are in danger of underestimating how much you get for intervening at ages of like 18. I mean, take um, King's College Medical School, uh, Guy's St. Thomas's. Um, the head of that medical school used to go around the comprehensives of South London saying, I hope one of these days, giving a description of what happened and saying, I hope one of these days uh, one of you kids, bright teenagers in this local secondary school, will be a medical student at Guy St. Thomas's. And if until eventually a head teacher took him aside and said, no child at this school is going to get three A's at A level in the physics, chemistry and maths that they need to get to Guy St. Thomas's. It isn't happening. Now one thing we could say is, well that's a reflection on scandalous standards in London Comprehensive, you've got to do better, which of course is true. But they went back to Guy's and St. Thomas's and had a different conversation. They said, meanwhile, given that we are living in an imperfect world and we don't think that every child in a comprehensive school in South London is incapable of being a medical student, what do we do? And what they did was they said, right, we will create an extra 25 places at our medical school which we will use, and we will finance an extra foundation year. So we will take kids who've got C's in chemistry or biology and spend a year getting their standards up so that they can then participate in the mainstream medical education course. That is another intervention. And as someone who is sometimes a bit sceptical about the efficiency of all of our public policy interventions, you do your best. In some ways, tackling the problem as it presents itself rather than the tackling the problem 15 years back, where you have a whole set of issues about false positives and exactly which intervention, tackling the problem as it presents itself is not a bad way of trying to do something about it. So we shouldn't forget those type of interventions alongside all the other ones. Okay. Your team really ah. want you, David. Yeah, Let Tessa have yeah. the last yeah. question. Right. Then I've uh, David, I salute you for what you've said about the need for universities and particularly uh, research intensive universities to take more students uh, who don't necessarily have three A's or lots of A stars available um, and to look in, instead at potential. Although I think you, me and everybody else who believes this is the right thing to do has to think a bit about how we incentivize institutions to do that mm -hmm. and how we disincentivize those who go on doing it. They have to be in some way held up um, and praised when they do it and mm -hmm. probably rewarded financially um, and when they don't we have to do it the whole way around but let me just remind you that one of the results of the implementation of the changes that your government had brought in was for a 40% decline in the numbers of part-time mm, and mature yeah, students yeah. there are more yeah. people yeah. from socio-economic groups which are not advantaged, indeed are disadvantaged in that category of students than there are amongst yeah. full-time 18-year-olds. Yeah. What are you going to do to stem yeah. this appalling outcome yeah. of your policies yeah. where lifelong right. learning at the university right. level has been hugely damaged? Right. Well, I, I accept, in terms of, the, of where we are now, as I say, I, I think that the strategic decisions we took 
in the circumstances that we inherit in 2010 were the correct decisions in, and the sense of correct that matters the most that was going to offer the best possibility of a good quality education for the greatest number of young people in England today. But there are undoubtedly two crucial areas where more work is needed. One is the postgraduate issue and the other is the part-time students. I completely accept that. And we have been very disappointed by the, the very low uptake of part-time student loans. We extended student loans to part-time students for the first time, hoping that this would maintain demand. It hasn't. So you then try to work out why that it hasn't had the effect, and that's, it's complicated, but the work of Claire Callender and others suggests that actually part of the problem, I have to say, is the ELQ policy we inherited from the previous government, where there's a lot of part-time students who may themselves have had some higher education before, so they're not eligible for the loans, and I was able, only a few weeks ago, to announce a first step in reversing that, and as resources for that available, I'd like to do more. But I... You know, let me end, because I do have to go off and vote, and let me now end, therefore, on a note that completely accepts that this is, a, this is work that is never done, uh, and you're always having to adjust to new challenges. And if the intellectual energy that went into Robbins uh, 50 years ago were now to be applied to those two twin challenges of uh, postgraduate finance and part-time provision, then I think that would be a worthwhile task for the next government, whatever its party persuasion. David, Thank thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be back after the vote. Our next speaker is, and he's just returned to the stage, Bahram Bekadnia. Thank you, Craig, and thank you very much for inviting me. I'm sorry that David can't be here to hear some of what I have to say. Um, now, the title for this, uh, this session what views for the future um, is a nice and ambiguous one. You can take it either as an invitation to uh, create a wish list or to make predictions, and I'm doing a bit of both. First, my great fear um, for the future is that the sector will segment even further over, um, over the coming decade in a way that's already apparent. Of course, as has been said, um, we need a heterogeneous sector to reflect the um, big variety of students uh, and missions, but differentiation is one thing, uh, fragmentation is another. And I hope to see a sector re-emerge that um, where each institution recognizes the interdependence and strength that it gains from being part of a whole. I'd like to see recognition that those institutions catering for the less brilliant but sufficiently able to go to higher education need fostering and encouraging um, uh, no less than others and that we re-evaluate re our obsession with uh, the strong and the prestigious. If we recognize the desirability of educating more students, and everybody today, including David, um, uh, seems to agree with about that, then that seems to be, to be essential. And by the way, that also means re-evaluating the view that it's by its research that uh, a university and a university system should be judged. Um, and that impacts, of course, the, uh, I mean, the reason why uh, England appears so strongly in the uh, international league tables is purely because of its research, its research performance and um, that's why by the way the LSE doesn't appear particularly well in the league tables because it's scientific research in particular uh, that forms the basis of those judgments. Um, one of the unfortunate things that uh, we've seen accelerating in recent years is the um, emergence of groups of universities with no concern for anything other than narrow uh, and segmented interests at the expense of a view of the whole. I regret that. On the other hand, a policy environment 
that penalises universities financially for catering for marginal students and for widening participation will ensure that universities are discouraged from undertaking those activities and catering for those students. That's why I regard it as so pernicious, uh, um, the, the suggestion uh, that I understand is under consideration at present to identify universities and even students within universities who cost the government more to provide for and those who cost the government less. It seems to me that cross-subsidy in all its forms is an essential feature of a decent university and a decent university system. Cross-subsidy of expensive subjects by cheaper subjects, females by males, low-earning students by high-earning students and universities with lower-earning graduates uh, than uh, by those with, uh, that are higher earning. Uh, I know this is uh, particularly blasphemous in the LSE, but economists and their orthodoxies uh, don't have it right all the time, and to reject cross-subsidy in higher education because it interferes with the purity of the workings of the market is wrong. It's not, right, uh, it's, sorry, it's not wrong, it's right that business schools sh should subsidise uh, science faculties, um, uh, and I've heard uh, people say that it is. We need to view a university as a whole, and I'd argue that we need to view the sector as a whole. We need a better balance between reliance on the market and competition to arrange and govern the sector on the one hand, and central planning and uh, collegiality on the other. A voucher system has not worked anywhere in the world in higher education, and there's no reason why we should expect it to work in this country. And although David didn't describe it as a voucher system today, he has described it quite rightly as a voucher system that we have now in the funding of higher education um, in England. We are learning the hard way that you can't assume that higher education will behave as other markets behave. And there are many reasons for that. One is that maximising earnings isn't and shouldn't be the main motivation for strategic decisions within the university. A second, to some extent, contrary um, reason, and I need to hesitate here uh, among so many economists, is the so-called Veblen effect, which states that there are some products, and we know that higher education is one such, where the value of the product is judged um, by its price. You can't assume rational market behaviour in that context. A third is that with the government controlling both supply and price, market conditions are almost wholly absent. And as Nick Barr has already told us, the government is bound to continue to control numbers so long as it continues to provide a subsidy for the loans that it gives. Each loan costs the government money, and unless we would have a treasury far more benign uh, than any that I've known, numbers are bound to continue to be controlled. And there can be no market in higher education in these circumstances. And the pseudo-market that's been created in just one segment of students and institutions is likely to do more, more harm than good. <coughs> I'm not arguing in favour of removing the subsidy, uh, and the reason for the subsidy is political anyway. Uh, what I am saying is that we need to recognise honestly that there can't be a market so long as loans are so heavily subsidised. Now, having implicitly uh, criticised David or perhaps less implicitly than explicitly criticised David's policies. And I'm sorry he's not here to say that I thought that his uh, pamphlet that he published uh, yesterday was outstanding. It's a long time 
since we had a Minister of Higher Education, uh, but, uh, since, since Tessa Blackstone, I think. Um, uh, and I exclude Charles Clark, because of course he was Secretary of State and not Minister for Higher Education, who had either the desire or the ability to write such a thoughtful piece. I particularly appreciated the, the, the way um, he, um, uh, he faced the question of potential demand in the future, and he dealt with that today. He's, of course, right that demography will lead to an increase in uh, the future. We've written about that in HEPI in the, extensively in the past. Uh, but over and above, likely demographic growth is growth through what I've described as latent demand. And by latent demand, I mean demand from those who are at present underrepresented, in particular uh, males. And I was interested to hear in the earlier conference the assertion that there was no gender gap um, uh, in higher education when last year 30% more females went to higher education than males. I think there is a real issue here, actually. So males, on the one hand, and uh, the other main source of latent demand is from the young and the not-so-young people from socio-economically underprivileged groups. The pamphlet that David uh, published and his talk this afternoon, this evening, um, identifies the latter as implying latent demand for between 130,000 to 160,000 additional places. If underprivileged groups were to increase their participation in higher education to match those of the more privileged, then we'd need that many more places. That's right. And we have to assume that that will happen. It may not happen immediately, but it will happen. But the gender imbalance is no less significant. So unless you believe, as I've said many times before, that males are inherently more stupid than females, which may be true, but if so, you have to explain why that wasn't so 20 years ago. Unless you believe that the poor are the undeserving and not so bright poor, and that Geordies are somehow inherently less able than Southerners, then you have to believe that in due course, at some undetermined time in the future, these groups too will demand higher education in much greater numbers. And in our last demand report, um, we estimated that if males were to demand higher education at the same rate as females, then that alone would create demand for 135,000 additional places at a cost of something over a billion pounds per year, roughly the same level of increase as that implied by catching up by the less socio-economically privileged. And the sort of additional demand that we're talking about, both the natural demand uh, of demography and latent demand, brings us back to the question of how it's all to be funded. Demand will be there. The question is whether supply will be allowed to expand to meet that demand. We need a sustainable funding system and we don't have that at present. I won't um, upset David in his absence um, by going through the analysis that we've done that demonstrates why it's unsustainable. Though I note with both concern and uh, satisfaction that uh, he now speaks of a RAB charge of between 35 and the first time it's been mentioned 40%, um, uh, which uh, is an increase of no less than 5% since the white paper. Um, uh, uh, and that's not a technical or a geekish point. The cost of that is an unbudgeted half billion pounds per year, which is going to have to come from uh, somewhere, though probably not from uh, uh, before an election. And this is one thing that concerns me. Uh, uh, it, it is that, it is that um, David talks about sustainable funding and talks about the, the, um, uh, you know, the benefits that, that, that we're getting by putting uh, more money into higher education, but it will have to be paid for at some time in the future. Um, and that is without counting the impact of the increase in the retail price index caused by the um, higher fees, which will add up to another half billion pounds per year. Uh, so 
Um, uh, whereas the, uh, w where the government is right, of course, is that the sorts of increases in numbers that we're talking about in future will require us to look anew at how we fund higher education, but it's not the system that we uh, have at present. I hope in the future we'll pour, uh, pay more attention to the question of degree standards. One of the most depressing things that I faced in HEPI is the unwillingness of the higher education sector to engage with the revelations of our surveys consistently over the years. Um, uh, so there's no doubt about their validity. They've been absolutely consistent and they've been confirmed by other surveys that show how undemanding um, uh, degrees in this country have become. And I'm not talking here about the amount of teaching that students get. It is about um, how much work they, um, they, they put in compared with other countries. Uh, I was shocked to learn that a survey by the EU of Erasmus students revealed that exchange students in the UK said uh, by a substantial margin uh, that studies here were less demanding than their studies back home. And that was 10 years ago and I don't believe it's got any better since then. Um, so compared with other, uh, with other countries, but also um, uh, as the Robbins report, um, as the comparison with the Robbins report shows, compared um, over time as well. Uh, but recently, one of the more heartening things um, is the fact that this is now beginning to be treated seriously. Some of you will have seen the admirable piece by Edward Acton, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of East Anglia, in the Times Higher this week, raising this very question and warning universities that um, they, uh, they, they run a terrific risk uh, if they don't address this, uh, this question. This next Thursday, the Quality Assurance Agency and the HEA, together with HEPI, are running a, um, a seminar on the question of the relationship between student effort and standards. And one of the things uh, that I have most appreciated in, uh, David's, uh, in David Willits's uh, tract, um, though uh, he resisted coming to the conclusions or even raising the questions about uh, what all this implied for standards, uh, covered this, uh, this question. There are few things more important that we face. If we allow standards to slip further, then we do a disservice to our students, but also to the country, as we produce undereducated and underprepared graduates. But we also do a disservice to the sector as a whole, because one day we'll be found out. And apart from anything else, overseas students will not be willing to come, and our graduates will not be welcome overseas. And finally, I realize that in a conversation about the future of higher education, I should probably mention MOOCs, so I'm mentioning them. <laughs> um, thank you very much. Uh, you remind me once again how much we are going to miss your work from HEPI. So thank you for being here. Our next speaker is Rache Naik. Good evening, everyone. Uh, Barham won't mention MOOCs too much, uh, so you can uh, bet that I will. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you to the LSE for, for taking this opportunity to remind us of uh, the formidable range of academics that this institution has, has given a uh, microphone to, has given a voice to, and has uh, enabled to develop a stronger and more successful higher education system for our nation. It is a real testament to this institution that you have had such geniuses as Robin. So I want to kick off with the big revelation uh, that uh, unlike Craig, uh, David and Barham, uh, it turns out I wasn't actually around in 1963. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so as a result of that, I, I had to do a bit of digging. Um, and it actually turns out I've got a huge amount to be grateful for. So I find that uh, my beloved Coventry City uh, were promoted from the third division of uh, English football to the second. Fantastic. Uh, I find that 
uh, we had a fantastic uh, report, although I didn't need to read about this, uh, but a fantastic speech from Howard Wilson, the Prime Minister uh, in, well, not Prime Minister at the time, but his White Heat of Technology speech 50 years ago uh, in 1963 that gave birth to my institution, the Open University. And thirdly, um, that the Robbins Report, which really should be congratulated for its vision and its ambition, gave birth to the higher education system that we have all been able to benefit from since, which enable people like me to be able to access the very best higher, higher education on the planet. And I, for that, I think we should all take stock and all congratulate the, uh, the people who were responsible, partly responsible for that report here tonight. But I just want to use uh, this moment then to do two things. One is to remind us about precisely what Robin said on a range of factors and particularly three that I'll come to talk about, teaching, innovation and social mobility. And secondly, to apply the lessons of Robbins to the world as we find it today. Because my contention for you tonight is that though scale is dramatically different to where it was 50 years ago, though the tools that we use to shape our higher education system are markedly different to those 50 years ago, the challenges, the fundamental challenges that we face are not all that different. The fundamental questions that we face of how to expand access without uh, compromising academic integrity. The fundamental question of how autonomous institutions, competitive in institutions, can contribute to a common good. The balance between the public and the private investments and the impact on who pays. And finally, that old chestnut of how you define quality in a higher education system. Is it about uh, the uh, attainment and the employability six months or five years after graduation? Is it about our earnings upon graduation? Is it about the lives that we transform, the volunteering hours that we give as alumni? Or is it about the time it takes for our academics to respond uh, to students and their essays? Or, dare I say it, given Barham's point at the end, uh, the time it takes for an academic to respond to a tweet on Twitter? Um, so we have to answer these questions and for all of them I want to try to apply tonight Robin's principles to the modern world. So let's take teaching first of all and let me take on Tessa's question head on. We have to take uh, what Robin said to note tonight. He posed a question around supply and he posed a question around the flexibility of our higher education system. Fifty years on we still haven't answered that question. Robin suggested that we try to open up uh, access, we try to raise demand, but in order to do that, supply needs to be shaken up. But yet we still talk about higher education as being an 18-year-old going to a residential institution for three years away from home. How archaic at a time when students are studying in the flexible ways and are living in the flexible ways that they are, that we still talk about higher education in those outdated notions. Four in ten of all of our students in the UK, despite the drop that David talked about, study part-time. We have to reflect that in our supply side, in our demand side, in our funding, in our metering of student numbers. Also, in addition to that, I still don't believe, and I hope that we get there as we look at the future system, I don't think we truly talk about how our higher education system in the ecosystem, uh, what we can sometimes describe as the orchestra of higher education that we really should be. What I mean by this 
is that the true range of opportunities that we've got to diversify the supply side are still not being taken up. If we think about the opportunities for local provision, for those who want to stay at home and those who want to continue to have a local presence at a local institution, yes, those opportunities are opening up, but we're still not achieving the sort of supply-side reform that we should. Yes, online learning is an opportunity, is a way to upscale uh, the numbers coming into HE, is a way to expand access, but it's still not being taken up at quite the pace that we all could see. UTCs are moving to try and shake up the relationship between business and education, but still not seeing the sort of growth and the sort of impact that we want to see. HE and FE, again, another opportunity for us to diversify the supply side, but still not quite making the breakthroughs that we would want to see. Now, let me give you one solution to this. We talk about students at the heart of the system. The white paper last year was called that. But I think that uh, David's question around the incentives for teaching quality is the most pertinent one facing whether we truly get that diversity and flexibility that we're talking about. And the one thing that would unleash that more than anything else is a truly flexible credit transfer system that enable portability between institutions and really put students at the heart of the system. How mad when students can make choices about where they study, how they study, how they live their lives, we don't end up allowing students to have their 120 credit points after year one, to move the institution down the road and continue their studies. At the moment, we as institutions are able to bring a student in and have almost certain confidence that they will be with us through the student journey. We must empower students to a much greater extent in order to let them use this consumer power that we talk to them as having in the new world. I also feel that the argument of business that we're not getting the graduates that business needs is a valid one. Uh, the notion that we simply allow our students to come through the system and that that does not engage in the world of work is one that should concern us all. And how we develop those great relationships is absolutely crucial. And I think that Neil Shepherd's uh, and Anna Vignol's work on merging the data between HMRC uh, and SLC, looking at the employability uh, and, the, uh, and the data, the labour market data, of where alumni go is crucial to making sure we harness a greater relationship between the world of work and the world of education. So the second big opportunity, innovation. Uh, Robbins uh, was speaking, Robbins was reporting in an environment where the average lecture theatre filled 23 people, 23 people in the average lecture and he exploded the notion that only a tiny few were capable of entering HE. Now today, 18-year-olds arriving at their campuses last month, uh, those people were born at a time when the internet was not a new thing for them. They have lived with the internet. And how bizarre, therefore, is it that in a digital age, when these people have these devices, when 75% of all Facebook logins, for instance, are on mobile, that we still deliver our higher education system in an analog age, that we still have someone on a stage preaching to an audience in the room rather than enabling us to have a facilitative conversation where we truly engage our learners in a discourse and a conversation about their learning and their aspiration. Technology has removed the old barriers on numbers and the fact is that demand cannot meet supply in the conventional world. We cannot build enough brick and mortar institutions to meet the growing demand that burgeoning middle classes 
right across the planet. And technology must be used as an example for us to grow access and to meet that growing demand. You're all aware, hopefully, of FutureLearn, uh, the, the, the MOOC platform that we launched a couple of weeks ago. And I genuinely believe that not only in terms of shaking up student acquisition, but also in terms of delivering higher level skills and delivering short courses, the online world has a huge opportunity to meet the growing demand that we have. And I just want to quote to you from Robbins 50 years ago. He told us that television has considerable potential value to, as a learning tool. And I very much hope that he would apply the same vision for the world of the internet and the opportunity that online presents us. And finally, I just want to touch on social mobility. And it is a still a huge challenge which goes unresolved in our new world. And maybe it's one which remains and one which is never going to be fully resolved. But I just wanted to touch on two points that I think really concern me. The first is postgrad. We've seen a huge growth in terms of the numbers of people able to access undergraduate education. That has been a huge driver of social mobility in our country and we should be absolutely supportive of that growth. But as was mentioned earlier in the comments to David, the fact is that the demand now for postgrad is rising at huge levels. Employers now regard postgrad in many ways the same way they regarded undergrad 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. That is a looming crisis for all of us. If students from lower socioeconomic groups feel that upon graduation their focus is getting rid of that debt, paying that debt down, getting into the world of work, earning that £21,000, what does that mean for social mobility? Now, as David's figures showed, 14% of full-time uh, of, of all students in 1961-62 were in postgrad. Today, that figure is 17%. And of course, that's not going to grow too much. It's not going to grow much beyond 23 or 25% in the next 30 or 40 years. But our focus must be on ensuring that the cohort that, that comes through, the cohort that goes into postgrad, continues to be as diverse as it is today. And if not uh, less diverse, it's absolutely more diverse than it currently is. That is a looming crisis and it is absolutely imperative that we get it right. And the second point I would, uh, I would draw your attention to is some work that happened at this institution. In the 1950s, uh, Shelley Halsey and Jean Floyd showed that intelligent children from working class families were being failed by the education system because they were, fa they were failing to pass the 11 plus and not making it to university. Only recently, John Hills and his team here showed in a report of the National Equality Panel that exactly the same parental income issues were having a stubborn impact on demand and on access. Now, all of us in this room today are thinking back at what happened 50 years ago and the changes we've seen since then. I would just pose the question to you tonight. We're sitting here tonight. What will our peers say about us in 50 years' time? Globalisation, technology, the advent of the internet, the digital revolution, all of these factors and many, many, many more give us a phenomenal opportunity to make a serious dent in the fact that those issues and challenges still persist. And it's incumbent on all of us to dig down and think really hard about 50 years' time and how our predecessors will see us, how our successors will see us. And if we don't seize this challenge, 
then I don't think we'll be learning the true lessons of Robbins. And I finally want to end on uh, a, another quote that uh, Lionel Robbins put into his report. He said 50 years ago that in general cultural standards and in competitive intellectual power, vigorous action is needed to avert the danger of serious relative decline in this country's standing. Tonight we should be proud about the fact that we still have the second best higher education system on the planet, an £11 billion export earner that is a jewel in the crown of the British economy, something that transforms the lives of millions of people, something that fuels our economy, something that makes our nation proud and can transform the world. Tonight we must ask the question, if that is the case, what opportunities do we have to keep our nation at the vanguard of the world? I would say to you that technology, student mobility, globalisation, these are not threats to that position. They are the enablers of us continuing to lead the world and be at the vanguard of global education. If we do that, not only will we transform the lives of millions more, not only will we create the right business environment for our industries to grow and succeed in the future, but will transform the world by expanding access and bringing education to millions more who'd never have been able to see it before. Thanks very much indeed. Okay, we have a few minutes for questions for either Bahram or Rajay. Yeah, Nick Holman, the third row. Uh, thank you. Um, I wonder actually if I could ask you a question, Craig, because the, the two enough. speakers, um, but I just, I'm Nick Hillman, I work for uh, David Willits, but, um, and also uh, the future director of, um, of HEPI, so I wear sort of two hats. But I wanted to ask you a question, because of the two speakers, Barham was very, um, put a big question mark over whether or not the research that's underway uh, crunching student loan company data with HMRC data, Amanda Vignoles. I don't know if she's still here, but she was here this morning, one of the academics working on that, which will tell us what the actual outcomes in economic terms of different of individual courses at individual institutions are. And Barham was sceptical as to whether that is a sensible uh, academic exercise because it opens a sort of uh, nest of vipers. Um, and Rajay also spoke about this and was very, um, said it was a very important thing and actually would open a whole new interesting debate. So I thought, as the uh, sort of head of the premier economics institution in the country, what is your view on whether that exercise? All right, let me try to give a concise answer. One, it is um, possible to achieve this, that is to achieve some kind of a clear idea of the economic payoff to particular courses at different universities only within pretty considerable constraints. So it can be done, there can be meaningful analysis, um, but at the same time this sort of information is um, hugely constrained by other things going on in the, um, the economy and, and in higher education and global competition regions things. So I'm not confident that we can do this with an extraordinarily high level of precision. So you, you pay into the bank, you get your course, and you get um, precisely that amount of returns. That's one, a little bit of question. Um, two, I think that 
Um, there is a reasonable right to know, and so depending, there's a question about how much to spend trying to achieve this number crunching, but holding that aside, there's a reasonable student right to know um, what um, things, what variables uh, like uh, job placement within six months of career, starting salaries, things like this are, so that there's, there's good reason to know. Third, however, um, this needs to be tempered by the risk of producing an extreme version of the instrumentalization that Stefan Collini and others referred to before, that is reducing higher education to those economic indicators. So I worry that um, it would be um, the case that we would produce payoff data of this kind and we would not have other comparable data, other comparable analyses for all the other ways in which higher education matters and therefore that this kind of economic payoff data itself a bit ambiguous um, in quality would crowd out recognition of the rest of what's important to higher education, the rest of what's important to the decisions of students and their families about choices. Craig, may I add to that? Um, I mean, I agree with everything that Craig said, but also, Nick, uh, remember the context in which I, uh, I was critical and worried about this, and that was the context where I didn't say, but uh, your, your boss is on record, I've heard him say, that he is opposed to cross-subsidy, and, um, uh, and my concern is one of the motivations for doing this is in the context of identifying different RAB costs, not different benefits for the student, but different RAB costs, cost to the government of students attending different courses in different universities with the, um, with, with the only possible consequence but the logical consequence that the, 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 the universities that uh, are, cost the government less will, be, um, will benefit and those that cost the government more will be penalised, the students that cost the government less will be uh, less supported and those that cost the government more will be better supported. That is the sort of fragmentation, the atomization of the sector that I deeply uh, I'm deeply concerned about, um, and I think it will be, um, be retrospective, you know, regressive, uh, very much so. When Nick becomes your successor, will we no longer be able to say your boss or things like that? <laughs> you too? certainly can't. No. I mean, that, <laughs> <laughs> You'll be a free man. Gentlemen, just, yeah. I just like to take Barbara one of your rhetorical points. You wanted a diverse but not a fragmented system. Yes. And I wonder if it's very briefly possible to tell us what that means. Do you mean you actually want a planned system? Uh, I think a greater deal of planning, yes. I think, um, and, and more explicit support um, for institutions that, uh, that may not be the ones that are, are, are supported um, so, so, so well at the moment. I mean, but associated with that, I would say we just don't know what it costs to educate a very smart student um, oh, uh, compared with a less smart student. Um, but assuming that we want them both to be as well educated as possible, I think we need better information about that to inform that sort of decision. Uh, um, uh, so yes, I, I, I mean it is difficult, I agree, but, but I want a sector, I want a sector that, uh, that, that, that where, where every institution is valued for the part it plays, but clearly they will be different and there has to be differentiation. Okay. Um, yeah, Nick in the back, and then next and down front. Uh, Baram, I'd like to press you a bit about the point on gathering uh, disaggregated data. I mean, if the argument is, one, we want to free up student numbers, two, we can't do that if student loans cost the taxpayer a lot, 
Therefore, three, we need to make loans less expensive to the taxpayer. You do that partly by designing loans better so that graduates with a good career repay in full, and partly by getting the remaining loss paid by not the taxpayer. Then your two candidates are a cohort of graduates through a sort of social insurance redistributive arrangement or some sort of university-specific risk premium, which needs the sort of data that worries you. Now, my question is, those data can be valuable for designing a good system of higher education finance, but I agree, if misused, they can be dangerous. So is there any way we can get the policy benefits from mining those data without opening ourselves up to the sort of fragmentation that uh, I agree with you would be highly undesirable. Well, I think we're, we're at one on this, Nick. I mean, I'm not arguing particularly that it's wrong to do the, the study, and if, it can, if the studying can be used to create better policy, then that's fine. But what I would be against is using that as a way of removing what is, uh, you know, the, the cross-subsidy that's apparent in the system at the moment, where everybody... Um, uh, in, in fact, the, 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 there's greater subsidy of, of, of the poorer um, uh, being paid for by the better off. I welcome that, and I would deplore um, a, a, um, a policy that, uh, that, that, um, that jeopardised that. And my reading of what's happening is that this study is being done precisely to, um, to remove that, that cross-subsidy. Okay, the blonde woman in black there. Thank you, Maureen Spencer, Mr. Sex University. I learned from Susan Housen's biography of Robbins that one of the contentious points that he had put forward was the desire, uh, need to look at Oxford and Cambridge. In fact, he was under and had to leave the Athenaeum because of the rather uneasy feeling about that. And I just wondered if in this, all this talk about the, the corrosive effect of league tables and it more egalitarian system, whether there was a case for looking again at the overwhelming power of Oxford and Cambridge. Right, so that's a diplomatic question, isn't it? Um, so, uh, look, I, th I think your question relates to the, the previous two questions that we've had. And it, it goes fundamentally to the point which I, I, I agree with to, a, to an extent with Barham, but I also disagree to an extent. We have to think about higher education not in the homogenous way that we currently think about it. And I say that on the demand side and the supply side. On the demand side, we still think about students in the way that I described during my remarks and that's not the reality and that won't be the reality in 10, 20, 30 years time and then on the supply side we still think of our education system as a, as a generic experience as, as something which is X and the reality couldn't be more different but uh, I, I'd always like to suggest that higher education is an ecosystem is a symphony uh, I think that the president of NYU, John Sexton, describes it wonderfully. And he talks about higher education as a symphony. And you, in your symphony, you need your percussion and your woodwind and all of the other parts to play in concert. And in the same way, our higher education system needs that too. Why? Not because the state somehow says that our higher education system needs it or because a politician in Whitehall says that's how we need it, but because business and individuals and students require it to be so. And so if we start to think in more plural terms about both the demand and the supply side, everyone then plays their role. Oxford and Cambridge play their role. Aston and Manchester play their role. The OU and others play their role. And I think that we then start to create the right sort of 
uh, infrastructure, the right sort of characteristics, the right sort of incentives that enable demand and supply to move in that more dynamic way. Because at the moment, we still end up with a very stale conversation about how the system should work and operate. I want us to move away from that to one which truly reflects the diversity, the ambitions, the hopes, the fears of institutions and students alike. I, I mean, I like the analogy of the orchestra, um, and I like the idea of every university playing its role. But that begs the question, then, what is the role of Oxford and Cambridge? And I must say, I struggle with this. I mean, they are outstanding universities. I mean, and the education they give their students is, is, is extraordinary. And we did a study of Oxford and Cambridge and looked at how special they were a couple of years ago. And they are different from any other university in this country, and almost any other, well, certainly any other in Europe and most of the world. But the question then um, is begged, what is their point? What's the point of giving a very small number of undergraduate students an extraordinarily good education? How does the country benefit from that? I mean, these, are, these numbers are so small. It's true they produce every prime minister of the country has ever had, naturally. <laughs> and we've benefited from that. We've benefited. But what is the point? How does the country benefit from this very small number of people having this outstanding education? Um, uh, other countries don't have it. Um, uh, other countries that are more successful than our country don't have it. So uh, yes, we we uh, you know they are they are good. They're, they are very good. But um, but I think the, you know in t t as far as undergraduate education is concerned, the question uh, I think has to be asked: What's the point? As gr as graduate universities, as research universities, then I think there are different questions. There. But uh, I'm talking about here as undergraduate universities. Right. The program calls on me about a quarter of an hour ago to offer a summary. And since we're behind schedule, I'm going to be very brief, but I am going to say a few words before we close on this. This has really been a very impressive uh, day, I think, a very moving day of discussion. It's been moving to hear from key participants in the Robbins Report, uh, Klaus Moser and Richard Layard. Uh, these are people who made an enormous contribution to Britain through their work on this report. And it was wonderful to hear from Klaus and from Richard this morning. The Robbins Report was an extraordinary research effort to support evidence-based policy. We have been very inconsistent in the extent to which we have had evidentiary bases for policy in higher education and other areas. And it's impressive to see the research that was done in this report. It became the basis for a dramatic expansion of UK higher education. And it actually takes an effort of thought to recall how dramatic an expansion, how much change there was. It's really quite extraordinary, a, a complete transformation of the meaning of higher education in the UK, not produced um, simply all at one fell swoop by the Robbins Report, but it played a very central role in this. At the same time, we were reminded today, and I want to remind you to remember that the Robbins Report contained many important recommendations which were either completely neglected in subsequent policy making or simply didn't find their way into the eventual legislation and policy. The idea of a ministry of arts and science, for example, how different um, might that be 
from biz um, as we see it today. Um, a call for breadth rather than specialization or complementing specialization in British higher education, which if anything has become more specialized in its structure over time. I think it's not the specific fragmentation that Bahram was just alluding to, but another version of a fragmentation um, in British higher education is the extreme specialization of many courses. And that's something that I would worry would be reinforced by some versions of this attempt to produce extreme market calculations of the payoff to courses. Um, Robbins called for making sure that teaching got at least as much emphasis as research, if not more. He was in many ways more worried, and the report worries more about teaching. That has not been the legacy of the last 50 years, which has been an intensification of emphasis on research and uh, real questions about whether and where that damaged or competed with teaching and quality of learning. So a big issue before us now is how to put learning back at the center. The idea of expansion that was the core of what we now see as the accomplishments of the Robbins Report has, as I said, been dramatic. The expansion has been real. Um, but as we heard discussed today, this has not greatly changed class imbalances um, we, in higher education. That is, we might have expected that such a revolutionary transformation in the proportion of UK students, uh, UK people in the age group, going to uh, higher education would have produced more transformation than took place. Um, in class structure. We've heard divergent views on what higher education can and should do about this, of whether it is something which is best attacked by direct work on changing the level of inequality in society, um, whether it is something that has to do with earlier stages of education, or whether universities should embrace uh, widening participation and creating social mobility as objects of their policy. It is worth noting that the change did bring greater inclusion on other grounds, including gender. So while there was not a transformation in the class structure of higher education, especially elite higher education in the UK, there was a transformation in the gender participation and to some extent in other kinds and varieties of, of measures of, of widening participation in the country. It is worth noting in that regard that demand and access, that is the proportion of women among students, aren't at yes yet, mirrored in advancement among faculty and in administration of universities. So this is um, um, indeed a, uh, uh, a continuing issue, but a continuing issue of two different kinds. One about where are the men as undergraduates in the system, um, but another about where are the women in top leadership of the system. This has changed the character, this expansion has changed the character of institutions and of the system. Individual institutions have grown larger and the overall higher education system in the UK has grown much larger and this has been a change. It's not just a cost factor, it's other things. Um, we heard Bahram's uh, concern about uh, a differentiation <coughs> versus a segmentation. Um, and I would echo this. I'm, I will add the concern as to whether 
the differentiation that has been produced in various ways has been too much dominated by hierarchy. Whether, where rather than a differentiation of mission, of intended target populations, of relations to local um, settings for higher education, we've seen a, the development of a single national hierarchy as a distorting influence on other kinds of differentiation. So that the ecology, I prefer ecology because it doesn't necessarily require a symphony, it's conductor, that doesn't necessarily require the idea that somebody is planning um, the role of every instrument in the orchestra, much as John Sexton's a close friend. Um, the, but in ecology, it seems to me, would produce a range of different ways in which universities worked and are what different kinds of pursuits for universities. Some of them would focus more on um, applied research into support to a local community, some more on um, research that was blue skies driven and so forth. Some would focus on teaching in different ways, offering a wider range of choices. We've actually had a surprising and to me worrying amount of consolidation into a single hierarchy. And I think this has been reinforced by the intensification of research and the way in which it's assessed and funded. That brings up cost and something we spent a good deal of attention on today, a whole session, but it came up at other points, is the financing of the system. Um, and it's worth noting that initially this expansion was accomplished largely through government subsidy and that it's a later transformation in the system which begins to alter this. Um, the, uh, it's also been noted that there are, are issues today about the extent to which um, arguably the humanities and the social sciences cross-subsidize science and technology, um, a point that would be denied by some, including David Willits, um, but a real question about what is being funded, um, what is in effect subsidizing, which subjects are subsidizing others within universities, a question that's only now beginning to come fully to the fore, I think, in thinking about um, higher education is crucial. Um, we heard the important argument from Nick Barr, I think, that higher education was always important culturally to the nation, but was much less important economically 50 years ago. And so this is not just a transformation in the cost of higher education, but in the relationship of higher education to overall economic performance in the country and to individuals' careers and career expectations um, in the country. We didn't discuss very much what drove costs up. Um, so one of the core questions that I think is on many people's minds, why does higher education cost as much as it does, wasn't very centrally on our um, uh, screen for attention today. Um, and until David Willett's remarks, the question of higher education versus what else in budgets. Um, we talked a lot about relative levels of funding of higher education, why it's good, what's going on, but of course a key question is what else is competing for budgets, um, what else is competing for government money, the health, National Health Service, a variety of other things. Um, this is not something that can be answered in isolation about higher education. And we left ourselves at the end of the day with a number of questions which I think are important, the last thing to say. 
One of them is that very question I alluded to a moment ago about instrumentalization, the extent to which we are narrowing our evaluations of the purposes of higher education. I think there is no escaping from the idea that there are instrumental purposes. This is the point that Robbins made with his passing quote from Confucius early in the report. Of course, people go to universities expecting to be able to get jobs. Um, and indeed, people who are first generation university graduates may have all the more reason to be focused on what kind of job they're going to get after graduation, lacking the benefit of family money and other resources to make their way in the world. But at the same time, reducing university education to its instrumental purposes would be to do great damage and to do great damage to some of the parts of higher education at which Britain has been wonderful for a rather long period of time and constitute part of our distinctive contributions. In open-ended inquiry, and here I don't just mean research, I mean learning by students um, in relation to practical purposes. I would be inclined to say that these often mix. It's not one or the other, but they're both important. That qualitative knowledge, as um, Stefan Collini put it, is critical and we should worry whenever we make objective indicators our only way of doing anything. Are we um, trying to eliminate a process of judgment, which is in fact one of the crucial human faculties advanced by universities, which we need to deploy in running universities in everything from admissions through to um, the evaluation of budgets. And this, as I think Stefan said, but I would underline it, is crucially a problem not just for government and how it works, but for democracy. Because if we don't have this exercise of judgment, we are forfeiting the potential to democratically guide um, the institutions that we care about and are focused on today. So will the inclusion of more private providers bring healthy diversity? Well, this is a question, and it needs certainly data and study, um, but it needs also judgment about what the roles are. What about the role of international competition and the extent to which UK higher education is being pushed by international competition? Um, and indeed, um, what, to what extent is government policy contradictory? Um, yes, seek international revenues, seek international leadership, um, but put up a variety of obstacles for recruiting international students. What is the, the um, way that we should think about something that came up over and over again all day, but I think needs a surer grip? Public and private benefit and cost, nature of institutions. Um, what do we mean by this? What is our conception of public benefit? David, in his two-by-two two table, um, put up at the forefront that there are both individual and societal benefits. That's part of what we mean, I think, but not the whole. We mean something about the very idea of public to which universities have been central, animating public discussions, animating the idea of the public good um, supporting continued exploration of what it means. And we have questions like, is open access something to be achieved by relatively commercialized means, paying private for-profit publishers to achieve for open access? Are the opportunities that are created by new technologies distorted by the way in which we think about how to fund them and how to run them? What about the pursuit of intellectual property rights? Are we distorting science by the way in which we try um, to chase the uh, profits and the funding of the fruits of science? And above all, what about the basic issue of reproduction versus mobility that runs through this? To what extent do we want universities that reproduce 
the existing organization of society, including its class divisions, to what extent do we want universities that are able to change that in various ways. The 50 years since the Robbins Report, particularly the last 40, about 38 of them, have been years of intensifying inequality. The first 10 or 12 years after the Robbins Report were years of continued reductions in inequality in Britain. And a variety of policy measures, including the founding of the Open University, reflect this push to have less inequality and wider opportunity in Britain. But since the 1970s, that has not been the primary direction of policy. And I don't here criticize any single government. I point to more than 35 years of intensification of inequality and higher education mobilized in this context, not simply as one of the vehicles for potential mobility, but as one of the means by which those in the middle and upper classes secure the reproduction of their class positions for their children. Now, we have new technologies and MOOCs. We have a variety of questions before us about funding, but will we change that question? It's a key one. Will we select simply on A-levels full stop or on potential? Will we support part-time immature students and reverse the trend away from part-time study and mature student opportunities, particularly in the country's leading universities, including this one? I think these are key questions. And I'm very grateful for a day in which we pose them. Thank you to everyone who made it possible. Thanks to all of you who stayed to the end.